0: Hi, my name is Alan Clark. I was the lead singer with the Hollies at a time. And you're listening to Follow Your Dream with Robert Miller.
1: Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast, which is ranked in the top 1% and has listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the great, the iconic Peter Noon, Herman of Herman's Hermits, one of the best, most celebrated and successful bands of the British Invasion era. He joined the band when he was 15 after a successful acting career, including in the soap opera Coronation Street. Herman's Hermits sold more than 60 million records and had 14 gold singles and seven gold albums. Their hits included, I'm Into Something Good, written by Carol King and her husband then Jerry Goffin. Can't You Hear My Heartbeat? And two number ones. Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter and I'm Henry the I Am. My high school band covered all of these hits. And in 1965, they spent 24 consecutive weeks in the top 10. On television, they appeared on Ed Sullivan, the Jackie Gleason Show, the Dean Martin Show and Danny Kaye and in the movies. They were featured opposite Connie Francis in When the Boys Meet the Girls, and they starred in Hold On in 1966. I'm getting tired here. And in the middle of this show, we're going to do as I do with all my musical guests, what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of these great songs, and I'm going to ask Peter to talk about them. You'll get the backstories, and I assure you nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know if you've been listening to this podcast that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of each episode, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen the song Hey Jake that I wrote for the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why? Well, Hey Jake is a fun Upbeat song, which I think could have been a hit in the 1960s, and I think it fits perfectly with all those great Herman's Hermit songs from that era. So, Peter Noon, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. How are you doing, Robert? I am doing just great, and having you on makes it even better.
0: Well, I'm living the dream.
1: Yes, you are living the dream. You've been living the dream for what 60 years or so. I know, but
0: I hate to say that because it makes you sound incredibly old.
1: You look very young.
0: But I joined a band when I was 13. So it's probably 62 years. Okay. You know, my first band was called The Cyclones when I was 13. And I was the lead guitarist until the day that the other guitarist in the band was trying to teach me a song and said, maybe you want to be the singer in this band. And I became the singer in the band. And then I joined a band called The Heartbeats because their lead singer didn't show up. Malcolm Lightfoot, I remember his name. He must really be, I hope he's still alive, but he must be, have a resentment against me because he he missed a gig and I got in, stood in for him. And that band made me become the lead singer.
1: It was the Pete Best of The Heartbeats, is that what you're saying?
0: Pete, Pete Novak and The Heartbeats. It was Malcolm Lightfoot in the heartbeats and it became Pete Novak. And Pete Novak was Peter Noon, who is Herman, who is multiple personalities. But his favorite one is Herman because he was the most successful. But um, that band metamorphosized over the couple of years in a van. You know, every band has that driving around in a van, getting... uh, And my first big gig was given to me by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Jerry invited us onto a show, which was Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, and Pete Novak and the Heartbeats. And that was my first big break. You know, there was, I, I call it shelves. You know, you go in this room, and there's all these shelves, and the bottom shelf is Pete Novak and the Heartbeats driving around in a van, and, 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 and about third or fourth shelf would have been Jerry Marsden. But he took us from the bottom shelf to the first shelf, which was a, the biggest step of all. The next sh- shelf was when you got a record played on the radio. Not making a, all my friends made records, but if you got a record that was played on the radio, and one day we were kind of we were already Hermans Hermits. There'd been all steps up to it, but one day we were in in the place where we we were kind of the, It was our home room. I think you called it. It was a club in in Bolton called the Beachcomber. And we played downstairs in a place called the cave or the cellar, or something like that. And um, we were changing in the kitchen, and it was 5:30, which was a magic hour for the radio. 5:30 was the magic, the most magical hour. And this man came on, and we knew him because we, we used to play lunchtime sessions at the plaza in Manchester, and he played the Herman Hermits record. And it was like, we suddenly, you know, I remember thinking, I'm in that room now with Roy Orbison and Gene Pitney and and the Beatles and Elvis Presley and Dion and the Four Seasons. I'd entered this realm of show business that I, I'd never seen myself in. I'd never imagined.
1: Which song was it that he played?
0: I'm into something good. Oh, I love that one. And, you know, it was really amazing because three weeks later, Three weeks later, it was the number one record in, in England. It went from unheard to number one in three weeks.
1: How did that happen?
0: Because the radio liked it. It was the mm. good record to play right after the news. You know, the new, <laughs> the pound at all time low, unemployment, five million unemployed. Uh, this will not affect the pound in your pocket. And, and, and then woke up this morning feeling fine. So it set a standard for Herman Summers. We always made records that would be played right after the news, which is always bad. The news is never good, is it?
1: You're right. You know, there was a guy in the United States, he was the lead broadcaster in the news, Walter Cronkite. And they once asked him the question, what's news? And he thought about it for a second. He said, well, I can tell you what isn't news. All the planes landed safely. Yeah. What he meant was, the news is only about bad things. So you're right. When you guys do a song that's so upbeat, so fun, like I'm into something good, I can imagine how it captured the nation.
0: And Robert, if you if you think of the period, we were all trained musically by the 40s and the 50s. Mostly the 50s. But we would also include in the in the fifth in the fifties. Some early 60s records like Chris Montez and and Bruce Chanel, you know, Hey Baby, which is all over the Beatles products. That hey baby Bruce Chanel. If you play that and then play any Beatles record from the first album, you can see the inf- you can hear the influence.
1: See the connection, yeah. You're right.
0: So we were influenced by everything that came before us. And I had an older sister who just was two years older than who had really good musical taste. So we knew all the romantic stuff as well that boys not necessarily nowadays don't hear that we heard you know i'll never dance again by bobby Rydell. we heard you know johnny angel by shelly fabarei and and all those things that were you know i hate to say it but they were kind of attractive in a period where boys didn't say come over here baby it was none of that. People needed to go to ask a girl to dance. And, you know, it was, it was a much more romantic period. And all our songs were...
1: You're right about that. Those were great songs, too. The early 60s were all yeah, great.
0: Think about it. You know, the Beatles' first album were all songs about, please, Mr. Postman. And, you know, uh, uh, and we'd dipped into that same bowl. Herman's Hermits were all fans. I mean, so Derek Leckinby was the lead guitar. His dad was a police constable not an officer, police constable, rode around on a bike, and he knew every Chuck Berry song from the biggest, you couldn't mention a Chuck Berry song that he didn't know. Keith Hopwood was a fan of people like Ricky Nelson, so he knew all that James Burton guitar stuff. That's all over Herman Summits. Carl Green had the same inspiration as me, He had an older brother who liked rock and roll, like I would call rock and roll Dion and yeah, Dion. I think he had all the Dion. His big brother had all the Dion records and all that showed up in Herman Summit's recording studios, all of it. And the people who joined us on the record, like somewhere during the period, I'm I'm not good at dates, but Mickey most called me one day and I lived not far from the studio. I lived in this crummy little muse apartment. Muse is a, used to be where the stables were downstairs and the man who rode the horses around for the posh people lived upstairs in a one room. Well, I had one of those because you could park your car downstairs. Now in the stable part where the horses were, you could park your car and you lived in the one room upstairs and it was the perfect rock and roll thing. So I get a phone call, Mickey Most, Peter, Sam cook has been murdered. And you know, Sam Cook was every English person's inspiration. <laughs> There's no way you couldn't say, you couldn't say one of your influences was Sam Cooke. So so oh no, he said, Eric Burden's over here. He said, Eric, Eric's over here and we're doing a tribute to Sam Cooke. So I said, oh, I know every one of Sam Cooke. What's what's Eric doing? Bring it home to, home to me. I said, let me do Cupid. I can even do the sound like, because when we do it on stage, I'm the person who goes, Cupid, drop a. And I can make that sound. He said, no. So I go in the studio and he said, you're doing Wonderful World. I said, why Wonderful World? That's not one of his best ones. He goes, listen, don't know much about history. Don't know much about geography. Don't know much about anything. Sounds familiar to me. (laughs) Get in there and sing it. So I go in the studio and uh, the only hermits who got there in time were um, the Keith and Carl, got there in time. So the guitar player is Jimmy Page. And Jimmy Page, during the session, you know, I walk in and he, you know, I know Jimmy, he's just a a fair-weather musician.
1: He's a studio guy back then, right?
0: Well, yeah, but he's in a load of bands as well. He's a player. He's like me and like everybody that we know, you're in multiple situations. And people used to show up at people's recordings and give them ideas for free. That was the period. You know, so Jimmy Page has an idea. He's going to da-da-da-da, and he says, the, the drummer is Bobby Graham, who's a fantastic person, and we only use Bobby Graham and, and Clem Catini. So, so Bobby Graham is bending down, fixing his kick pedal, when, and he's got his headphones off. When Jimmy Page says, let's cut the intro in half, so me and Jimmy are now live in the room. You know, we used to record the lead vocal and the band on one track. That's the way we just did it. We didn't know any better than we didn't care. We just wanted to record moments. They were called moments, and and we don't know that Bobby Graham hasn't heard that we've got. We're going to go ba 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 ba. Don't know much about letter A, right? So Bobby Graham still got ba 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 a double. Intro. So, all through the record until the bridge, Bobby Graham is playing a different part than everybody else.
1: (laughs) He's not at the same part of the song as you, huh?
0: But we finished it. We finished it and we went all the way to the end with an ending. And Mickey Moe said, Next. I said, Well, Bobby Graham's playing a different song than we are. Doesn't matter. You can't sing it any better than you just sang it. Isn't that something? It's all wobbly and it's not, listen to it. I listen to it and I like it. I can hear it on the radio. It's a blinking number one.
1: You know, we talked about this a lot on this podcast. Back then, because the technology was so limited, you guys would all be in the studio. You would do exactly like you said. You'd go through a tune. There could be mistakes. There could be errors. I've heard about all different stories about guys getting the words wrong, etc. But it had the feel. That's what counted. And that's what Mickey Mouse was telling you, right?
0: Yeah, well, Herman's Hermits were of a moment. We were created in a moment that was perfect for us. You know, the England Swings was on the radio, and I had an English accent. And then we put Mrs. Brown out, which was, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, which was with an English accent. I decided that I had to be careful not to be sounding like Bobby V or Tommy Rowe or any of those people that I was imitating. So they didn't have an English accent. So I did everything with an English accent.
1: I got to ask you this question, because here in America, you're right. Every time we hear British people singing, for the most part, they don't have a British accent. Was that because they were trying to lose the accent as they were singing? Or what was the reason?
0: I, I, I know the reason. The reason was that everything American was better than everything British, because we didn't know how good. Cliff Richard was at the time, or Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. We're talking about this cloud over all of England, which was all the great musicals, all the great movies, the big ones, not necessarily better than the British movies, but the biggest movies were Ben-Hur and The Magnificent Seven and Sound of Music and South Pacific and all that was coming from America. Broadway was turning into major motion pictures. And rock and roll was all popular music was an American creation for our parents too. Um, my dad would sit around. He knew, my dad knew every Nat King Cole record off by heart. From the beginning, you know, the trio, he knew all that stuff. And that was American. And my, my dad liked Woody Herman, Thundering Herd. So we only knew America. All English people like the Ted Heath Band and the Joe Loss Band, they all aspired to play as well as the Americans did. They didn't want to play as well as the Italians. They wanted to play as well as the Americans.
1: So You wanted to sound like you were American. Is that what you're saying?
0: I think the only way you could get in the charts at the time was to sound like an American. If you, if you wanted to be an American, see, we were Yankophiles. I'm not just saying me, Herman Hermits, Beatles, Stones. We were Yankophiles. We believed that everything American was better than English. And then suddenly people came with English accents and Americans thought, oh, that's better than American. That's better than American. And you saw what happened. The poor Four Seasons and Jay and the Americans, and they were kicked out of the box. They moved down a shelf.
1: You know, I talked to so many guys from England on this show that all said the same thing, basically. They coveted American music, like you just said, particularly the blues, which was not nearly as popular in the United States as it was in England, and so many of the English artists took American music, particularly the blues, redid it in your own way, and gave it back to the americans and We loved it now
0: well they, but they took blues songs and popularized them, they fixed them so that they'd sound more more friend more appealing, you know, because the pop thing there was a period at probably nineteen january nineteen sixty four when i pers- had to make a personal choice did I want to be Big Bill Bruinsy or did I want to be Bobby V? I couldn't be Frankie Valley because I couldn't sing that good, but I could do a, a kind of close Bobby V. And I, from my Buddy Holly experience, which my Buddy Holly and the Crickets experience where I was the kid who had every Holly record. I had the outtakes. I mean, I, and by the way, I also had all the Carol King demos and my choice was, I better go with that popular thing, and I call it the Snuff Garrett world. And I'm sure you know what I'm saying. Your listeners may not know, but Snuff Garrett was this miracle worker who managed to find all these songs and put people on them, like uh, Brian Hyland and Bobby V and Gary Lewis. And what happens is over the generations, people... Claim credit for something that they shouldn't really claim the credit for. Mickey Most found the great songs. We had other. We found some great songs as well, but Mickey Most and Snuff Garrett are responsible for a lot of hit records. And I would say, whoever the guy is who made the for all the Four Seasons records, absolute genius. You know, I mean, and whoever made the Jay and the Americans records, we didn't. We never heard of Jay and the Americans in England. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, I went on stage with, with them like it, it, and I met them and, and they're really good guys. You know, I'm no J number three now. I'm up to J number three. But right. they never got played on the radio in England. Perhaps it was the label. Who knows? Like, like Paul Revere and the Raiders never got played in England. Never heard. We never heard of them in England. So there was this thing going on that, that we were now becoming sort of more. You know what? Until the British invasion, It was all a bit Charles Atlas and glue on the hair and, hey, baby, I love you, this pullover that you gave to me. And it was all American high school stuff. We didn't know anything. We'd never been under a boardwalk or up on a roof. So all that stuff was a mystery to us. We we still did the songs, but we didn't know what they meant.
1: I got to tell you, it all came back to us and it was great. Hi everybody, this is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States, so I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth, and I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience, and of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dreams. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode, and the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. And like you said, before when you were talking about I'm does something good. It was just so well done. It was so much fun. It, it grabbed everybody in the United States. And you guys rode the top. You rode the crest of the wave. Tell me about your impressions now, all these years later, about that first song. I'm into something good.
0: Well, I still do it live in every. I open every show I've ever done with that song because it puts me into the place that I came from, which is a 16 year old boy with a 17 year old guitar player and a 17 year and a 17 year old bass player and a 18 year old drummer and a 20 year old ancient geezer on lead guitar, and. We were put in a room. It was the first time we'd ever been in a, in a recording studio on auditions. We'd done lots of auditions, all of which we'd failed. Uh, you know, go back and rehearse for a year kind of things, you know, or the tape played backwards when we took it into the office. So what happened was that we were doing the song. I'm happy to say that Carol King also thinks that the Beach Boys are responsible for that recording her song. She mentions Brian Wilson being an inspiration. So you know I think it goes, Ooh, which so we thought we were making what we were trying to do was get a kind of surf sound.
1: You had a demo in front of you at that moment.
0: We we'd had a demo, a Carol King demo, and, a, and an Earl Jean recording, which was like the Earl Jean, the Earl gene re- recording was demo the was Carol King's demo with Earl Jean singing lead. Like locomotion, you know, I think that's what would happen. And because um, I guess Carol King didn't want to be a pop star. So so we'd rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. We thought we had the feel. And Mickey Mouse said, you know, I know this piano player called Roger Webb. And he's in, um, well, we know Roger Webb. He's a jazz guy. He goes, yeah, but I think he knows what you, so this Roger Webb from nowhere, I mean, he's a 50-year-old guy. And we're all teenagers, and he knows what I'm talking about. Mickey Most always knew what I was talking about. I said, you know, that, you know, that echo, the slap echo on, the, on the, you know, that, uh, that record by the Everly Brothers, you know, walk right back to me. He knew exactly what I was talking about. This Roger Webb, who was a jazz guy, knew exactly what we were talking about, and he came up with that, da, 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 which is the surf feel.
1: Really? I never thought of it as a surf field, but now that I'm thinking about it, I I get it.
0: It's my word for it, you know what I mean? But we made a surf record, and no English bands did that. And when it came on the radio, it sounded so fluffy and lively and happy, because we were fluffy, lively, and
1: happy. (laughs) You bet you were. All right, let's go to Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, which Two things I want to mention. Number one, you talked about how you sang with a a British accent. And in that one, you definitely had that accent. And the other thing is, you know, I'm a teenage guy in the United States at this time. And I remember watching you guys perform, it was probably on Ed Sullivan. And they had a a picture of your guitar player with, you know, a, a, a rag or something. Maybe it was a handkerchief that he put by the bridge of his guitar to get that muffled sound. And I'll never forget that.
2: Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Girls as sharp as her are something rare.
0: Okay, so what happened was that the song came about because Keith Hopwood, like I said, was a James Burton fan and he also was a Chet Atkins fan. You know, we had all these people that were in our, that were in our world and we heard that there was a play on the television called The Lads with a person we knew called Tom Courtney singing underneath the introduction the song Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. And Keith Hotwood had this, it wasn't a record, it was background. And Keith Hotwood had this Chet Atkins Country Gentleman guitar. Big hollow body. Uh, a damper. It was a hollow body, but it had a damper on it. Right. So Keith Hopwood had this Gretsch Country Gentleman Chet Atkins model, which had a damper, which moved a little damper up above, uh, on between the bridge and the first pickup and muffled the spring, strings to sound, it, it was supposedly like a banjo, but it's more like a ukulele because a banjo has more the opposite of, of a damper. So it's a lanka-tanka, lanka-tanka-tanka. And we, we sat around and we learned that we had a, a Revox three and three quarter IPS tape machine and we'd recorded the music from the show, and we went and learned, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, on The Great Country Gentleman. And and it became a bit, see, it might be a long explanation, but here you go. We wanted to have different songs than everybody else that played The Cavern and The Oasis. So we couldn't do Roll Over Beethoven because guess what? The Beatles did it better. We couldn't do any Chuck Berry songs that we liked because The Beatles or Jerry and the Pacemakers or the Billy J Kramer did them better. So we were searching to create our own identity amongst a massive amount of a massive amount of competition for being good at something. So Mrs. Brownie got a lovely daughter became a highlight at the cavern because it was diff- people would stop dancing and look because it was a new sound and it was different. And I would pretend to be the person in the record. On, on, in the song. Right. And I would pretend I was walking up to the door and knocking on the door, and the girl would answer, and he was from Manchester. That person I was pretending to be to be was from Manchester. The person on Leaning on a Lamppost is from Yorkshire. I'm leaning on the lamppost at the corner of the street in case a certain
2: little lady comes by. Oh, me a certain little lady comes by. Oh, she's wonderful, she's marvelous, she's fabulous, she's beautiful, and anyone can understand why. I'm leaning on the lamppost at the corner of the street in case a certain little lady comes by.
0: And that was me as well. Person Henry VIII is from London.
1: This was your own conception of where these people were from, I assume. Is that what you're saying?
0: Uh, no, I think I was right on. I I knew I knew there. Everybody in England even knows which parish you're from because we all got okay. different accents all over. You know, um, so you know you know somebody from Manchester, like David Jones was from Manchester. but He was from another part of town, and I knew where he was from by the way he spoke. So, and that's the thing. So, I did Tom Courtney as a Mancunian. He he isn't. In that, isn't that? I did um, Henry the the same as I th- the original, which was a 1915 record that my granddad knew, but but everybody knew that song in England. Everybody knew the words to that song in England.
1: See, that's so interesting because we had never heard it in the United States. When you guys came out with "I'm Henry the Eighth," it was a kind of a novelty song, but it worked. It was brand new for us.
2: Second
0: verse, same as the first. I'm jumping around a bit here, but think about of the moment what that means. So we're in the studio, and we, we we want a follow-up to Mrs. Brown, Who got a lovely daughter, which we never expected to be a hit. It was album filler, and and it'd been a massive hit. We tried to stop the label putting it out as a single until it got a million, because we thought it'd sell the album. The radio would play it, we thought it'll sell the album, like the Beatles had done, you know, like. What's that song? The Beatles have a song that was never a hit, but everybody knows it. So we're in the studio and we're looking for it, and Mickey Mouse says, "How about Henry VIII?" I said, oh, "Well, I know Henry VIII. That's mean, You know, I'm Henry VIII. I am." And everyone else here knows it. And Derek Leckembe, who's the Chuck Berry fan, comes up with that lick. All right. Yep. And we all start, and Barry Whitlam has got this cha cha. Chat, 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 which I can't remember which record it was on but it was on quite a few records at the time it was kind of a popular feel maybe maybe five records out with that and he could play it and I'm going to tell you I've never heard anybody who can play it as good as Barry Whitlam did on that session and that was the first time he ever played it <laughs> so we record it and we're recording it and we don't really know the song that well so when you don't know us in England you go, go Go back to letter A. Or
1: second verse same as the first, huh?
0: Second verse the same, but on other records we could do wacka do wacka do wacka do do wacka do do, which is also a measure, which doesn't sound Italian. You know, we're not going to go for that vocal thing. We're not going to do that. We're going to be yeah. pop singers and not. And and we record it, leaving second verse same as the first, thinking we're going to have another go. And Mickey goes, oh, you, that's it. I said, we're joking. Can't we just do like double track the vocal or something just to po- polish it? And I said, it's brilliant. As it is, that first take is that you're not going to be able to beat it because it's got all the magic of the moment. And they're saying all these words. And I, you know, I, I've had acting classes where we've discussed Stanislavski and method and stuff like that. And, of course, that's what it is. You know, if you become the person in the song, people will believe you. There isn't a fourth wall on a record. People will believe you. They'll be in the record believing you. They can climb inside the song and the music, and they're in it. And they'll sing in the car with their mom and dad five times. Amen. the eight. I am. Yeah. <laughs> Just the same as you sing. You know the song that never ends. So, it immediately captures everyone's attention, and we can play it really well on stage because we it's using the best of what we know. And Mickey all the time, is say, Mickey Most is saying all the time. I'd say to Mickey, can we try it in another key? And he goes, "This is no, this is the right key. But it's in C. Surely it'd be better, a little bit higher for my vocal. And he goes, listen, I can sing it in C. And if I can sing it, the whole world can sing along.
1: Isn't
0: that a great line?
1: That's a great line. And he, hey, listen, he, he guided you so expertly from everything you're saying here.
0: I have to give Mickey Most the credit. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but see, he he took credit for things that he didn't do because people do that. People do that, you know. But I give him the credit for understanding. First of all, he was my best friend. He lived with his in-laws. You know that's how well he was doing. Came back from South Africa, and he was a, a really good guy, nice guy. So I went to his house, and he had a he got a guitar up because I'd seen him. <laughs> it's a long story. I went to see. The Everly Brothers in Manchester with my sister and on the bill was Bo Diddley and the Rolling Stones and the opening act was Mickey Most and I'd seen Mickey Most and I thought he's pretty cool and I told I go to his house and I said I saw you on that Rolling Stones tour and I saw you and I, I was calling it a Rolling Stones tour mean, it was an Everly Brothers tour and I said, and I love the bit in the middle where you get down on your knee and play a guitar solo on the guitar with no strings on it. Uh-huh. And he said, Yeah, you just because the guitar player on stage was a better guitar player than me. It's great, that's a great own up. People don't give those credits away. So I said, He said, but I'm a pretty good guitar player, but not as good as this guy who was in the, the house band, right? And he picks up a guitar and him and his wife, Christina, who's my age maybe. No, she's probably 17, 18. They sing devoted to you by the Everly Brothers, and they mean it. And it's, it's a life-changing moment for me. It's a life-changing moment for me that this man could sing, I'll never hurt you, I'll never lie. You know what I mean? And I go, Wow. That's so powerful in a song where you can sing, you know, and i'm I, I, all I take away from it was i I'm so inspired by somebody who has the balls to say to somebody to their face, and she was singing the the, the fill part exactly exactly under they had all the notes they did it, I'll never hurt you, yeah, and the bridge is complicated, and the words are so beautiful, you know, devoted, devoted, what a word, right so. So I'm in his club now, and i and i I'm in his fan club as a person, so he's my best friend, he's also the best man at my wedding, he's also my daughter's godfather, et cetera et cetera et cetera and you know we fell out a lot, we had ups and downs and everything, but we were always a thing called friends we did not we argued about politics and stuff like that and religion, but we were always friends you know in those days up until maybe 20 years ago, people could have an argument and still be friends. They could disagree completely. And I once said to Mickey, you know, I got my opinion. Please don't try to change me. Let me know your opinion and I won't try and change yours. And that that kind of worked for us. And he was my friend.
1: There were a handful of guys back in that era that had the right ears and the right orientation. Yeah. And they became kind of the gurus for these young bands, a lot of the young British bands. And I'm thinking, of course, you know, George Martin, etc., cetera, for the Beatles. And, you know, Mickey Most was right in there. And in a sense, it was a very mutual relationship, right? You guys could, he 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 gave you the direction, but you guys could manifest that direction.
0: Well, what what, what we found out was we couldn't make records without him. We would make records in America and panic and he'd get on the next plane to come and save save our asses, basically, you know, because we would be we'd be falling apart and listening to other people telling us what to do, which he never did. He just get, let's roll tape. What've you got? Let's roll tape. You know, what I mean, there's there's hundreds of tracks by Herman Söhmets that are just sort of sound unfinished because we skip a whole verse of "I'll Never Dance Again." It just we we didn't record it right. We missed it. You, you know what I mean? We were we were in the studio recording and we missed a verse, and it's an important verse. So. Stuff like that happens, and thats I think that's the magic that he didn't tell us how to do it. So he shows up, and, he, and, we, and we, we've run into a problem with the – There were great songs that they had, but they weren't right for Herman Sermitz. And we were making a movie called Hold On, and MGM had decided that Carger and Wayne, these two famous writers – I think they wrote like a lot of Elvis Presley things, so we were really, really impressed. And um, he showed up and he said that none of these songs work. We couldn't say that to them. MGM, they wouldn't listen to kids but he came and he said no, no, no no." and he got, P- Phil P.F. Sloan came over with five songs we recorded them all, he showed us how to do them on his guitar and we recorded them and they were all kind of hits in a way, must to avoid
2: She's a must to avoid A complete Surprise at the, start. At the start. But take my advice, play it small. Just play well, she's small.
1: nothing but let it down on the she gets into your heart.
0: Great song. Double track the lead vocal. And then, you know, we, we now had three tracks. So, you know, we would mix everything down to one track. It's just the way we did it. And that's what our sound was.
1: Well, listen. I want you to know, and I'm sure you do know this, that you had an enormous impact on the not only on the British invasion, but on music, on the United States, and I'm sure in Britain as well. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on this show. I think we got to do a part two and a part three as well, because we haven't even gotten into most of it. But I want to thank you, Peter Noon, for being on this show. It's been just a spectacular experience.
0: Well, thank you, Robert. I enjoyed myself. I love talking about me. <laughs>
1: Well, you've talked about you, and you've talked about some great music, and you've talked about so many things, and it's just been wonderful. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the, uh, the episode. It's my song called Hey, Jake. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.